Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Everyday Theology, where we as ordinary pastors connect theological truths with everyday believers. I'm your co-host, Dustin Walters, and I'm joined by Ben Campbell, your host, and we have another special guest today. Ben, tell us about our special visitor for the show today. We have uh, the president of Welch College, Dr. Matt Pinson here, and uh, we're here to talk about his new book, 40 Questions on Arminianism, and uh, we're hoping to get a good, solid discussion today. Dr. Pinson, it's good to have you. It's good to be with y'all. Well, for those of you who do not know, we suspect that most of our listeners probably are uh, already aware of Dr. Pinson and who he is, but I just want to kind of provide a little bit of a bio about Dr. Pinson uh, before we get into a conversation about his forthcoming book, which we hope all of you guys will um, order and pre-order, get your hands on it and share it among um, your pastors and church leaders and uh, people in your association. So Dr. Matthew Pinson serves as Welch College's fifth president, and he's served in that office since 2002. He's a native of Pensacola, Florida. Um, he attended Welch College back in the 80s. Um, he graduated from West Florida with BA in Humanities and an MA in History uh, before he eventually went on to get an MA in uh, Religion from Yale, where he met Miss Melinda, uh, who's a North Carolina native. And uh, while he was a student there at Yale University, eventually, uh, Dr. Pinson became the president of Welch College. And after that time, he completed his doctorate in higher education and leadership from Vanderbilt. Uh, Dr. Pinson has served as a mentor to both Ben and myself. And he's the author of numerous articles and books, um, including Perspectives on Christian Worship, Four Views on Eternal Security, Arminian and Baptist, A Free Baptist Handbook. Um, and then this new book that we're going to talk about today is entitled 40 Questions About Arminian. What kind of inspired your writing this book? Kind of take a step back a little bit. What inspired you to write this book? And um, maybe what got you connected with the publisher? Because I know there's some other books in the series that are really promising that I mean, they have one on 40 questions about Calvinism. They have lots of projects that they're working on there. So kind of tell us a little bit about the history of how you um, decided I'm going to, I'm going to do this project. Well, I think this, I'd always wanted to write my own book on this question on the, you know, my mentors uh, on this question are Leroy Fourlines and Robert Piccarelli. And uh, I'm sort of, you know, I'm not wanting to blame them for what I think, but you know, if uh, I'm, I don't really have a lot of original thoughts. You know, I mean, I'm I'm standing on the shoulders of great people, and uh, Leroy Fourlines is is uh, you know I'm standing on his shoulders, and Dr. Piccarelli, and so you know, um, but I've always wanted to write my own book on this, and I just didn't think I would do it this soon. But then, uh, I mean, what happened was uh, that. Uh, the uh, I wrote an endorsement for the for the volume on forty questions about uh, Calvinism, and uh, and Sean Wright, you know, said, "Would you write an endorsement for my book?" And I read it, and I really liked it. You know, I disagreed <laughs> disagreed with it, but it's a great book, and I would encourage people to read that book as well. If you want to understand, if you want a broad understanding of Calvinists and what they believe and why they believe it, then I would recommend that you read the forty questions about Calvinism in this. Series and by the way, I like this series. A lot of people are using these uh, books as textbooks in Bible colleges and Christian colleges and seminaries, and uh, I like the series. And I and a lot of people that uh, you know it's a serious series and it's more of an academic series. But there are a lot of lay people uh, who are not as uh, academically oriented, but who are kind of getting into and want to go deeper in these things. And, and the 40 questions series uh, makes it more amenable to them. And, and it's a way for them to get deeper and to roll up their sleeves and kind of go deeper in some of this material. So there's a lot of different topics. But anyway, it just started with that and with Sean's book and uh, and then just some conversations that we had um, with Ben Merkel, who's the series editor, and some conversations he and I had about, you know, well, what about a, what about a questions on, on Calvinism? And so, uh, so he said, uh, he said, he liked, he loved the idea. And I just said, you know, uh, what do you think about that? And he said, that sounds great to me. And so he talked with the folks at Craigle and they jumped on it. They really liked it. 
And so the, they have just been a joy to work with. I mean, I've, I've worked with a lot of publishers, but uh, the, the, they had, and, and I think this spirit of ironic, you know, kind of reaching across the aisle, if you will, and, and, and trying to, 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 uh, to be ecumenical in the right sorts of ways and, and, and that sort of thing. I, th I think that they really have been a, a genuine model of that. In fact, that one of the, I think that, you know, the, the main content editor that I had was a gentleman that uh, is a Methodist who actually did a PhD at Calvin Seminary. And so it, it just kind of all worked out so well. And, uh, and they, uh, they got a good thing going up there, and I'm I'm, I'm very thankful for their uh, for their willingness to, to 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 do this. So we're talking about Arminianism, Dr. Pinson. Uh, we want to uh, address kind of the elephant in the room from the beginning, because and you you know what this is probably, but the elephant in the room is what you call our um, our strand or our spectrum of Arminianism as Reformed Arminianism. And uh, of course, that's not, I guess, original with you. Maybe Four Lines or Pickerelli had that uh, nomenclature before, I guess. But uh, can uh, describe what it means to be reformed as an adjective. If you were to say reformed theology or reformed Arminianism or what have you, what does it mean to be reformed? Well, you know, in a sense, uh, you could say that uh, reformed Arminians agree with Calvinists, other people who are reformed, in the uh, on what it means to be in a state of grace, and we disagree with Calvinists on how one comes to be in a state of grace, and that's a, a handy way to think about it. And when you think about the essence of reformed theology on salvation, it's not really so much about how one comes to be in a state of grace. The details about election and predestination and resistible grace and whether universal grace is true or particular grace is true. It's really more about to what it means to be a Christian and, and how that affects one's uh, uh, union with Christ and, and how that affects one's sanctification and one's spirituality. And so when you look at those aspects of the Reformed faith, uh, free will Baptists and others uh, who are Reformed Arminians uh, tend to have a lot in common with the Reformed community on things like that. Reformed is more uh, atonement. You know, we believe in the penal satisfaction understanding of atonement. Uh, we believe that Christ is fulfilling the law and his righteous life and his expiatory death, his propitiatory death. Uh, so, so we really uh, are resonating with that rich Reformed uh, 16th and 17th century Reformed um, understanding of the nature of atonement and what Christ is doing on the cross. Uh, that's very important to us. And uh, we think that that issues forth. We agree with what a lot of Reformed theologians and Calvinist theologians say when they say that a thoroughgoing penal satisfaction understanding of the atonement of Christ issues forth in an understanding of the union that we have with Christ and justification that is uh, very that, that emphasizes the the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us or credited to us uh, in a sort of a forensic kind of way, rather than it being imparted to us or infused in us, uh, which is the way that some other non-Calvinist traditions put it. But uh, like the Calvinist uh, tradition, uh, we would very much agree with that approach to uh, to justification. Uh, and we think that flows out of, a, of, of a, a thoroughgoing penal substitutionary view of the atonement. So, you know, J Thomas Grantham, one of our general Baptist forebears, he said, you know, uh, some people question whether the active and passive obedience of Christ is really imputed to the believer. And maybe it's just the, the passive obedience and not the, the active righteousness of Christ and uh, his fulfillment of the law. But he said, I take it to be both. And he said that Christ is fulfilling the law in our stead on the cross and in his righteous life. And that is Im imputed to us in this glorious exchange when we place our faith in Christ. So that uh, atonement and justification, you know, and then uh, the Reformed view of sanctification is a progressive uh, sanctification. And uh, the fact that... Uh, 
sometimes we go through periods where we're not as close to the Lord as we were before. And we, we go through periods of backsliding. We go through periods uh, of drift. But we are still in union with Christ. But uh, the, the Mortification of Sin is the book that John Owen wrote. Uh, and it's about how we deal with sin and temptation and how that, uh, and it's all about our spirituality and sin in the life of the believer. So like when you look and see what uh, John Owen is saying about that, when you look at what the canons of Dort say about sin in the life of the believer and the assurance of the believer of his, of his present salvation, you know, we are very much in line with all that. It's very much a, pro- a progressive sanctification, a sanctification that is, uh, that is in line with a reformed understanding of, of the union of Christ with the believer, our union with Christ. And uh, it, it, it kind of eschews those, those uh, entire sanctification motifs that we see in some other forms of, of Arminianism, even some perfectionistic understandings uh, that we see in other forms of Arminianism, where that if there is, if you are struggling with sin, uh, that, that you, you sort of can't have sin and faith at the same time. And it's just a completely different view of that that is a lot more resonant with the Reformed uh, view of, of, of justification and sanctification. Also, our view of spirituality. Typically, Reformed Arminians don't tend to, uh, don't tend to embrace sort of mystical kind of higher life, deeper life, holiness approaches to sanctification. It tends to be much more sort of, you know, just kind of the Puritan spirituality uh, with an Arminian uh, twist, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so uh, th- that's a little bit of, of, of where we, uh, why I would say it's, it's, it's kind of neat to say Reformed Arminianism. Dr. Pinson, that was a helpful uh, introduction and uh, what a rich uh, way to kind of engage and begin our discussion here of the new book. I'm so excited personally before I ask this next question about about the book. And uh, frankly, I wish we would have had this when I went through your Free Baptist history course at Welch. Um, But I'm so thankful that we have this now and uh, by a highly recommended publisher. And and so we're very grateful uh, for your work. I do want to ask you a question about um, Arminius himself. Tell us who was Arminius. And you kind of highlighted some of those those key factors of what makes him reformed. But tell us who Jacob Arminius was or uh, James Harmensoon or however we want to talk about uh, James Arminius. Tell us who was Arminius. Uh, and what is it about him specifically that connects him to the Reformational tradition? Essentially, uh, you know, Arminius is uh, is a Reformed theologian who is born in the Dutch uh, in in the Netherlands, and uh, he he come he he really is brought up in this milieu in the Netherlands in the seventh in the sixteenth century which is very much influenced by the Reformation mentality and Dutch Reformed theology and Dutch Reformed doctrine and really confessional Reformed theology of all uh, nationalities is a much broader thing in the 16th century than it becomes after the Synod of Dort. And so Arminius comes up in this uh, setting and he uh, he goes to university actually with at Geneva with uh, with uh, where Theodore Bates uh, uh, was active. And so he gets into the hotbed of superlapsarian Calvinism. Some earlier biographers thought that he started out as a superlapsarian Calvinist and then came to accept uh, his views later. But Carl Bangs uh, really proves the fact that Arminius never was a, a superlapsarian Calvinist. He was always this kind of milder, uh, um, broader reformed view that held to uh, the broader uh, Christian tradition of uh, gratia universalis, the universal grace that is resistible by people. And so, uh, for example, you have that in the formula of Concord, the the confessional statement of the Lutherans uh, at this time. And you have that in Melanchthon, for whom uh, Arminius had a great deal of, uh, of appreciation. And so that when it comes to soteriology, in the 16th century, uh, the uh, the Reformed community is much broader, and a lot of these Melanchthonian uh, uh, 
views on things, these views of Philip Melanchthon and the formula of Concord and the Lutheran movement are also seen as fair game, and it's okay to accept those and to still be a Reformed person. In fact, uh, really, to be Reformed was more of an ecclesiological uh, pronouncement. I mean, obviously, it was about sola fide, sola gratia, you know, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, sola scriptura, and it was about soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. And it was about justification by faith. And uh, all those other uh, typically Protestant, classic Protestant uh, reasons why uh, the Protestants uh, were re- attempting to reform the church and their uh, concerns about uh, the Roman Catholic tradition as it had developed and the papacy and the like. But In a sense, what divided the reform from other uh, Protestants and other reformers were ecclesiological questions. So, you know, um, you had uh, Calvin and and Luther, for example, had very different views on the Lord's Supper. Their their Eucharistic theology was very different. Um, Their views on iconoclasm, you know, images. And uh, the, the, the whole, what has now come to be known um, in the 19th and 20th centuries as the regulative principle of the church. I mean, do you need to have mm-hmm. biblical warrant for church practice? Or is it okay just to do things as long as they're not sinful or not, as long as they're not contravened by scripture? And so, you know, Calvin took, um, and Zwingli, the other uh, big reformed 16th century uh, uh, leader early in the Reformation, those two gentlemen took uh, very different postures on some of these things uh, than what uh, Luther took. And then it also was differing from the Anabaptists. They had very different views on things from the Anabaptists. Now, like I said before, as a Baptist, it, you know, we're going to differ with Arminius and with Calvin on a lot of things, ecclesiologically. Yeah. But in terms of the sola scriptura and the basic sufficiency of scripture, and what the uh, what the Westminster Confession would later call the outward and ordinary means of grace, those are things that uh, you know we would agree uh, all Baptists would have taken from uh, either Calvin or Arminius. Uh, they would have just said, uh, "You're not reformed enough. You know, you really need to be thoroughly reformed and embrace believers' baptism only by immersion." And so. Um, if you really think about it, reformed, even in its earliest iterations in the 16th century, is an ecclesiological dynamic. We are being reformed according to the scriptures. And the reason we are marking ourselves off from the reform, I mean, from the Lutheran tradition, is that they have the wrong views of, of how thoroughly we need reformation. And it has to do with church practice being purified and reformed according to the scriptures. And uh, it has to do with having Eucharistic views that are correct, you know, that, that, that move away from the, the sort of consubstantiation approach that, 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 that uh, Luther leaned toward. And so uh, it was not really uh, uh, d- defined in the 16th century, Reformed theology wasn't, as Calvinism, as the five points of Calvinism. That's what you see hardened as you move into the late late 16th century and into the early 17th century, you see that become a controversy because you see these young uh, people, who, these young men who are being educated in, the, in Geneva and other strongly Calvinist universities, and they begin to uh, get very serious about a much more speculative, strong, hardline uh, Calvinist soteriology and so they take that out into the churches and it creates controversy. It's not soteriology because some reformed people in the 16th century agree with the formula of Concord kind of theology and agree with Melanchthon. And some people agree with Calvin and there's freedom on that. And that's why you can't see in the Belgian Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism or the other confessions in the 16th century a strong viewpoint one way or the other. It kind of allows freedom. It's kind of vague enough to allow freedom. In fact, Joel Beakey says that that the the Senate of Dort was needed to shore up the the, the braces of the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgian Confession uh, in, in its weaker places. 
I think he's, he's uh, Beaky is specifically talking about the Heidelberg Catechism, and he says the Synod of Dort was needed to shore up the weaker points and the weaker places in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, and, and I agree with him. Uh, the, that's why you have what people in the Reformed churches in Europe call the three forms of unity. The first two forms mm-hmm. were the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism. And Arminius said, hey, I agree with those. I, I, I can sign my name to those. I, I fully agree with them. And, uh, and yet there was a third form of unity that was added in 1619 after the Synod of Dort, and it was called the Canons of Dort. And that's where your classic five points of Calvinism come out of. All of his theology and all of his doctrine is forged in the crucible of, uh, of, of, of controversy and even pressure and even subtle persecution. And as you can see, as we move through this and you get to the Senate of Door, the persecution is no longer subtle. It's very, very uh, uh, um, clear cut what's going on. And so uh, you see um, Arminius developing his views in this context of controversy. And the more controversy and the more these young, restless Calvinists out of the universities in the uh, late 16th century begin to needle him and hammer him and accuse him of things, he has to defend himself on the basis of the Belgic Confession, on the basis of the Heidelberg Catechism, and of course, most importantly, on the basis of Holy Scripture. And he defends himself and he puts out treatises and he, he, he puts out uh, pamphlets and the like. And of course, he, he's also engaged in theological academic disputations. But basically, um, this is how Arminius makes a name for himself. And so basically what happens is that after Arminius's death, this just heats up more and more and more. And, uh, and then the remonstrants come into the picture, uh, many of whom were, um, you know, they were Arminius's followers. They they uh, agreed with Arminius in, in basic terms on the uh, on, on these issues of Calvinism and Arminianism, and then essentially, they uh, they are they think they're getting into this Senate of Dort as equal players, and that they're going to be able to 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 have dialogue here and to make a case for things and to be uh, to, to to be equal participants. But very soon they find out that they aren't. And the Senate of Dort is very much weighted heavily against the Arminians. And it's, uh, you know, um, a lot of Arminians said it was a kangaroo court. And, uh, and so, and, and by the way, if there are some young Arminian doctoral students out there, uh, an Arminian needs to write a definitive history of the Senate of Dort, because all that we have on the Senate of Dort that's really academically credible at this point is written strongly from the vantage point of Calvinists. But uh, so anyway, so what ends up happening is that uh, uh, the Senate of Dort declares uh, the remonstrants, the Arminians, uh, heretics. And I'm not overstating. I mean, that's, that's what it says. Uh, the, 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 they declared them a, a form of heresy. And then uh, uh, these Arminians began to be persecuted and run out of town. And they, you know, they lost their living, their, their uh, ability to to pastor a church, and of course, that they couldn't be in the Reformed Church anymore. One thing that I did want to remind our listeners of, it's, it's fascinating to me how the persecution that followed Dort um, after Arminius's death is kind of foreshadowing to the, the persecution that happens in England um, later on. I was reading some things about uh, Joseph Wright today, actually, and Joseph Wright was friends with Thomas Grantham, and they actually took a letter uh, to Charles about this petition. So, but but there was this persecution of these nonconformist pastors. They end up losing their livelihood. They end up losing their churches. And there's this little church in a, in a small town that ends up somehow getting through being sanctioned in a town called Maidstone. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, that's right. And so, anyway, I just... I think it's fascinating, uh, Dr. Pinson. One of the things that I wanted to um, ask about is at the end of chapter one, you talk about Arminius's conciliatory spirit, which you've just been kind of elaborating on the ways in which 
Arminius was very ecumenical. Um, you say specifically, one wonders, had Arminius lived another decade, if his conciliatory spirit and reform sensibilities might have been brought about a different outcome in the theopolitical situation of the Netherlands in the early 17th century, and thus the Synod of Dort. I, I thought that sentence was uh, pregnant with truth, a uh, treasure trove of just kind of Arminius's heart and his devotion, uh, yet unwavering commitment to his beliefs. Yeah, I mean, you know, Arminius was very clear on what he believed, but in that particular context, in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, where you had a confessional uh, situation that allowed for diversity on those things, Arminius was willing to, uh, to, to maintain that diversity and to have that diversity. But Arminius also had a conciliatory spirit, and he was more ecumenical. And he was more friendly to people in the Lutheran church and even to the Anabaptists, even though he staunchly disagreed with the Anabaptist view, of, you know, our view of baptism, believers baptism and the separation of church and state uh, of institutional church and institutional state that the Anabaptists uh, believed in. He, he still uh, did not want to see them persecuted like the Calvinists. And so, uh, Arminius and the Remonstrants and that whole side of, of uh, the, the Reformed community in the 16th and 17th centuries, they were much uh, um, more conciliatory and ecumenical and, uh, and so forth in their views on things and, 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 and did not want to, to see people being persecuted and, and, and so forth for their, for their, for their views. And so uh, in some ways, uh, Arminius had a you know, what J.C. Ryle, the old Anglican bishop in the 19th century, called a Catholic spirit, you know, a small c Catholic. He he really wanted to see, uh, the, you know, Catholic originally meant in Latin, it means universal, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the, the universal church, the fact that we're all in this together and we want to be careful uh, uh, to have humility in the way that we hold our views. And that's why in the way that we discuss these issues uh, with our Calvinist brothers and sisters and with our Lutheran brothers and sisters and with our Wesleyan brothers and sisters, we can hold very clear views like I have advocated in this book. And yet we can do so with, with an ironic spirit. You know, uh, um, Thomas Oden, one of my favorite authors, uh, said that, uh, you know, that there's the, the two, talked about the two sister disciplines of ironics and polemics. And, uh, you know, that you can engage in polemical discourse when you need to, but it always needs to be done in a spirit of ironicism and peacemaking and, and yeah. not a, a warlike spirit. Um, you've already talked about some of the similarities that Arminianism has specifically with Calvinism, questions three and four in the book that you kind of go through. Um, Talk to us a little bit about one of the differences maybe being about certain perseverance. You talk about on page 45 about how the, the Arminian understanding of certain perseverance is a little more nuanced than what we might expect. Yeah, well, if you're talking about, again, there's there's two different approaches to this thing. There is the uh, how one comes to be in a state of grace question, uh, which it puts us very much in contradistinction to the Calvinists on our view of perseverance and apostasy and the meaning of those things. And then the, uh, the, the, what it means to be in a state of faith, which informs our view of perseverance and makes us different from some other Arminians on this question. But I, I guess I'll just start, I'll start with the first one. If you want to discuss the other one, we can at some point, but uh, the, the bottom line is that, that most Christians just never have believed in the once saved, always saved doctrine. Uh, and then the reason, you know, for that is that it's, uh, there are two reasons. Number one, just, you know, in terms of, of uh, logically and theologically, uh, if, if you believe, um, you know, most Christians have not believed in, a particular and irresistible grace. Um, the vast majority of Christians throughout the Christian tradition, I mean, one almost might call it the Catholic doctrine, the, the, and I don't mean Roman Catholic, but the, 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 the mainstream doctrine of, 
Christianity is uh, is universal grace. You know, Christ dies for everyone. Uh, God is calling everyone, and not just externally, but internally. God is calling everyone to Himself, and He's drawing everyone. And He, Christ, died for everyone, and and He really wants everyone to be saved. You know, John Piper said, "There's a sense in which." You know, that verse in, in, in the New Testament that says, you know, God is not willing that any should, should perish. And there's no says he desires that everyone be saved, that everyone repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so he says there's a John Piper, by the way, and I really uh, respect Piper a great deal. I've learned so much from him. And yet uh, and even the way he deals with this issue, I respect the way he deals with it. And uh, I. Some of our Arminian friends are just Piper bashers, and we've got to be careful about that. I mean, we've got a lot to learn from Piper, and we can disagree with him on this and disagree seriously, and yet not just bash and just just be so negative. But uh, because the way he, he deals, even with this question of God's desire for all to be saved, he's got a whole book out on it. And he, you can just tell that he really is compassionate, he cares, and he really wants to be biblical. And But but anyway, at, at one point, he just says there's a sense in which God desires that everyone be saved. And there is a sense in which he does not. And I just think that most Christians throughout the Christian tradition, of all tr- Christian traditions, whether Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox, whatever, they would just say, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. There is no sense in which God does not desire that all come to repentance. You just you just can't get that exegetically from the text of the New Testament or the Old Testament. And so that's the thing is that uh, the, 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 the Catholic tradition, Catholic Christianity, mainstream Christianity always said, Gratia universalis. And, and, and so obviously, if it's gratia universalis, if God in some way, shape, form, or fashion is reaching out to everyone with grace to make it to make them in some way able to be saved at some point, then obviously the reason that they're not saved is because of their resistance. And so that's that gratia resistibilis. I'm trying to say it right because my Latin teacher friend, Daryl Holly, makes sure that I get that right. <laughs> Not resistibilis, but resistibilis. So, so I hope that Dr. Holly will watch this and he will be proud of me um, for getting my pronunciation right. But, but it's really true. I mean, most Christians just believe in universal and resistible grace. And so when you believe that, and now, by the way, if I'm a Calvinist, I'm not going to believe that you can uh, forfeit your salvation or that you can stop being a Christian. That makes absolutely no sense in the unconditional predestination, absolute predestination schema of Calvinism. I think they are very consistent with that. But if you believe, like some of my dear brothers and sisters who believe in once saved, always saved, but don't believe the rest of Calvinism, if you believe in the resistibility of grace before conversion, and then you don't believe in it after conversion, it really puts you in kind of a pickle. You got a you got a conundrum there because you know if you sit here and for page, several pages and and agree with Arminians that prior to conversion. We are people made in it. We are persons made in the image of God. And part of that personality, part of that personhood, part of that being persons made in the Imago Dei is that we think and we feel and we have, we make free choices and that God relates to us as persons. So it is, as Leroy Forlan says, an influence and response relationship where we have the freedom to say no. We couldn't do anything without him influencing us. We couldn't do anything without his enablement, without his provenient grace. But he he wants to relate to us as persons. And so it's not like a hammer and a nail cause and effect relationship. 
he influences. It's just what Sparminius calls suasion. Yeah. And so you're a person and you're, it's a relational dynamic. It's a back and forth dynamic. And so when you have people that believe that and they argue that, so they argue the resistibility of grace based on anthro theological anthropology and the personhood and the influence and response and that we are thinking, feeling, acting beings, and God is not going to violate that. And there's this back and forth element and we can resist God's grace. When you argue from that kind of deep theological anthropology, well, then when you get to conversion and the moment after conversion, you lose all that. It's really hard to say that. And that's why I think that the the, the most consistent kind of uh, view is either full-fledged Arminianism or full-fledged Calvinism. And by the way, I think five-point Calvinism is the on, only consistent view of the atonement as well, unless you're going to be what the Bible teaches, and that is our many. And in other words, but you know, it, another hard thing to understand is four point Calvinism. You know, so if if, if I'm if I weren't going to be a full fledged Arminian, I'd jump right on board with the Senate of Dort. And uh, I know this is going to warm the heart of my friend Michael Haken and some of my other friends, but I would I, I would become a five point Calvinist, no questions asked. I used to say, you know, it's the doxological test. If you just read, a, if you read a text of scripture and you don't make a comment on it, and it's like a responsive reading in a church service, what, what is the best theology that allows you to say amen to it? And if you can, if you can say amen to a responsive reading of if you fall away or when you fall away or if you've fallen away, you can never be renewed to repentance. And if you just read that without comment, and all the people said amen, well, then the theology, and then and then the next Sunday you read, no man can pluck him out of the Father's hand. And or you sing it, you know, the Getty song about no man can pluck him, you know. And, and, and so if you could just say amen to that without without comment, without responding to it, without explaining it away, or explaining what we really mean by that. And that's what one of the things I love about Reformed Arminianism is it's, it passes the doxological test. You don't have to do a lot of explaining uh, about what we what we believe uh, when it comes to salvation, because we're, we're not saying we have a strong view of assurance and a strong view of security, the security of those who continue in union with Christ through faith. Absolutely. And yet we also have a strong view of warning. We really do take those warnings absolutely seriously. And, you know, Schreiner and, and, and Kane Day talk in their book, The Race Set Before Us, about those two types of passage, uh, two types of passages in the New Testament. You've got promise passages and you've got warning passages. And, 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 and the promise is about assurance and security and other words that we use uh, that are related I'm not saying assurance and security are the same thing, but they're related. And then other uh, passages about warning and, and ha what do those mean? And the thing I love about Reformed Arminianism is it allows you to af affirm the promise passages and the warning passages with as much gusto as you do the other ones. And so uh, I think that passes the doxological test. But uh, I would encourage my, and I do encourage my good, uh, once saved, always saved friends uh, to, to to think about this and, and, and to think about um, the, the implications of believing in the resistibility of grace and the way you have to make that argument and uh, and, and how that can uh, how you can construe um, absolute perseverance when you don't believe in absolute predestination because you believe in the gratia resistibilis. We want everyone to know that today's episode of Everyday Theology is sponsored in part by our friends at Welch Divinity School. Through the Master of Divinity degree, Welch Divinity School seeks to foster Christian scholarship and provide leaders with graduate education in theological, classical disciplines, and in their integration with the practice of Christian ministry. To learn more about Welch Divinity School, visit welch.edu forward slash divinity.
about well there's there, there raises a lot of thoughts for me but i'll condense it to a few uh one, one of the things that with universal grace and resistible grace is i i would suspect that uh universal grace probably is because there's universal sin and what in the mind of God says, I'm only going to offer this to some of these sinners? You know, where, what kind of love is that? Um, and what kind of, what kind of character is that to say only these few? Um, but, you know, and again, we want to be charitable to these once saved, always saved, um, uh, those who hold to that view. But, but where does the role of faith go? after one becomes regenerated you know where where uh, faith kind of becomes nullified once you regenerate um because after you've met the condition to be in the state of grace well there's no condition to stay in it and faith sort of is kind of put on the back burner throw it out the window whatever you know whatever metaphor you want to use there um and so it, it isn't important uh you know mr fourline says Take, take the theology that coheres best with reality, that, that makes the most sense in the way the world really is. And, of course, you know, obviously we have some beliefs that Reformed Arminianism does. So uh, so we've touched a lot on several questions here. Um, I want to go back, though, Dr. Pinson, to... Uh, we, we You spoke on the atonement a little bit in the introduction and how that is a sort of a foundational reformational belief um, that that would make you reform the penal satisfaction view of atonement. But one of the, one of the main differences for reformed Arminianism is uh, the distinctions. There is the extent of the atonement and you write now, you also mentioned that um, we can't solely uh, base our theology on Arminius himself. We also have to take those who followed after him. And you quote Thomas Helwes here um, in your book um, on the chapter of the extent of the atonement. I forget which chapter it is. Um, but you, Helwes says, man is justified only by the righteousness of Christ apprehended by faith. In other words, what we're what Helwes says and what Reformed Arminianism affirms is that human beings are given Christ's righteousness. They are elect when they meet the conditions for salvation, with it, which is faith in Christ. So speak a little bit to the extent of the atonement as it is in Reformed Arminianism. So um, the extent of the atonement is who Christ died for, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, in, in, a, in a sense that this, the Reformed Arminian doctrine is the same as the Arminian doctrine. All Arminians believe the classic Christian teaching on the extent of the atonement, that Christ died for the sins of the world. And, uh, you know, there are just not a whole lot of people that in, in, in the history of Christianity that have taught that, that Christ only died for the elect. I mean, most Calvinists I know don't believe that. Most Calvinists I know don't believe that Christ only died for the elect. Even most of them believe that Christ died for everybody. And so uh, it's, it's, it's very natural when you read the Bible, when you read the New Testament, and when you read uh, the Christian tradition to think that uh, Christ died for everyone. And uh, th th there are lots of texts that attest to that. There are no texts that state that Christ died only for the elect. Obviously, we all believe that Christ died for the elect. Um, but Christ also died for the non-elect. But there are, no, there are no texts that explicitly teach unlimited, I mean, they explicitly teach limited atonement. Mm -hmm. There are lots of texts that, that teach uh, unlimited atonement, universal atonement, general atonement. I'd like for some of my Calvinist friends to weigh in on this with me. I've asked some of them about it, but it seems like that the trend now is toward four-point Calvinism. Mm -hmm. Still a strong Calvinism, not kind of the Amaraldian and Baxterian kind of four-point Calvinism, but a strong 
reformed Calvinism, but without the the limited atonement. That seems like you know the, kind of the yes. way things are moving. You know, this there's a lot of uh, you know this hypothetical universalism. There's a lot of scholarship being done on that, and that seems to be the way things are moving. So, you know, it, it's it's just hard to. One of the best books I've ever read on that is a big tome called From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, which is if you want to read the limited atonement view, that's the book to read. Now, it's huge and it'll take you forever, but it's a very, very thorough book, very good scholarship. But it it just uh, it still just doesn't seem to be dealing straightforwardly those texts straightforwardly rather with those texts that just again and again and again affirm that Christ is dying not just for our sins but for the sins of you know the whole world. Yeah, well, and again, like you say, it's it's inconsistent with the entire message of the Bible, not just the New Testament, not just those propitiatory text like there's only four in the new testament there's i think a couple in romans one in hebrews and one in first john uh but it's 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 a message that is consistent throughout the entire bible that that it's not only jews that the messiah is coming for it's these grafted in gentiles and that's everybody else (laughs) if you're not a jew you're a gentile so um i want to shift gears though we're gonna uh get this uh get these last couple questions in because Really, this is where the rubber meets the road when it comes to Reformed Arminianism. Um, and I want to just speak to this next one just real quickly, not not too much. Um, but uh, talk about free will, determinism, and God's sovereignty and those the relationship of those three. Um, the, the heading in your book is a more biblical picture of God's sovereignty. Um, four line, or it's either, I think it's pick. Piggerly says that God is sovereign over his sovereignty. And so can you explain sort of the Reformed Arminian view on that? Well, and again, this is not just the Reformed Arminian. This should be all Arminians. Uh, you, you know, God's sovereignty in the Bible is, is presented as, if you, we talk about God's, God has a, has a strong providence over what's going to happen in the world. But God's sovereignty is always viewed like a human sovereign, like the suzerainty vassal treaties in the that you see in the ancient Near Eastern context, uh, where that there's this suzerain and that there is this king, this sovereign, and that he is laying out a covenantal, he's laying a covenant out with his people, and he is he's striking a covenant and he's saying, Here are the terms of the covenant, and I am the one that is setting the terms. Deuteronomy 28. Terms. What? Deuteronomy 28. Yeah, I'm setting the terms of the covenant here. And you've got to, I'm stipulating the terms of this covenant. And you must abide by this covenant or you are going to suffer the consequences. That's the typical biblical way that we see the, uh, the sort of, uh, that we understand sovereignty. And so, you know, I have one place in the book where I talk about the fact that in Reformed theology, as it developed after Dort, and really slightly before Dort, the the way that Reformed theology in the Reformed tradition crystallized into Calvinist theology or to a deterministic metaphysic was when they exchanged sovereignty for determinism. So sovereignty moved from this, I am the king who has control over the universe and uh, and and my um, and and I am setting I'm stipulating the terms of the covenant uh, through which you can enter into relationship with me and if you do not meet those terms then here are the consequences and you will receive these consequences and this is how you will be punished and you will be removed from my realm or you or whatever it is and so that's really what happens is that sovereignty goes from that kind of mentality of the lordship of Christ and the and God's lordship over his creation and that there's not one square inch of the universe over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry mine and 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 he's got the whole world in his hands and we are 
his people and, and we're under his lordship and we are wanting to abide by the stipulations of his covenant, right? you, you know, by, by, by the terms of his covenant that he has stipulated. It moves from that sort of relational suzerainty vassal dynamic into this kind of, well, I'm going to get my way. You know, as John Piper says, God is going to see to it that, that, that he gets his way. I'm going to get my way. Every single thing that occurs in my universe will be precisely as I wish it. Well, that's just that's just not what you get when you're just naturally reading Scripture. I mean, when you're just naturally reading the Old and New Testaments, you don't kind of get that's not the feel you get. Yeah. That sovereignty sovereignty is I am in control of my universe. Uh, the universe is ultimately going to go the way I plan. And I want to be Lord of your life. And I'm the Lord of all the universe. And I want to be your Lord. That's not the mentality you're getting from Calvinism. It's that I'm going to get my way and I am going to meticulously get my way in every choice you make. It will be the choice that I desire for you to make. And there's all kinds of ways that they discuss how that, well, that's not, he's not directly doing this. He's using indirect causes and secondary causes and all this kind of stuff. And, and uh, uh, so, so there are lots of, of, ingenious ways of getting around the implications of I am going to preordain every single thought and every single action that occurs so that I can get my universe exactly as I like it. And so that's the problem that Arminians have with that. That does not seem to be the biblical notion of sovereignty. Uh, There seems to be in Holy Scripture an understanding that, that you can do one thing or another. You know, in, in Calvinism, as in all deterministic uh, metaphysical systems, you can only do one thing, and it's the necessary thing. It is what is ne- what must occur, what must come to pass. There's only one thing you can do. You don't have the power of alternative choice. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so like when it said... You know, when it says uh, 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 when you come under temptation, God will give you a way of escape. You know, well, that's the power of alternative choice. Just think about the implications of that text for the question of the divine determination, the divine foreordination of every thought and choice. Every human thought, every human choice will happen just as God wishes for it to happen. And then think about that text. There is no temptation that has, you know, my memorization's off, but there's no temptation that has come upon you except as is common, except as is common to man. But that God will give you a way of escape from that temptation. This is kind of an unspoken uh, thought, but I was thinking about this as we were reflecting through this, and then adding uh, Brother Fortlines' total personality paradigm to this discussion, Doctor Pinson. Um, it seems to me that the Arminian position has more ground to stand on in the context of counseling. For example, um, the client who goes to his counselor to seek a change in behavior modification or thought redirecting or something like that. Well, if that person's determined to be set in their addiction, then how, how are they supposed to get out of it? But it seems like the Arminian position would allow God is making a way of escape, whether it's through repentance and changing your behavior or saturating your mind with the Bible. My point is to say, if a person is determined, every action in that kind of determinism paradigm, it does, it's hard for one. I don't, there are counselors that I know and love friends with that are Calvinists. And I just think their theology is not coming out in their practice because in their practice, as a licensed professional counselor, they think the client can change, but that's inconsistent with theological belief. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, we want to be very careful. Um, you, you know, if when you read my book, you'll see that, you know, when, when you're in a context like this, where you got an hour or so to kind of, to, to, to jaw, as my grandpa used to say about something, 
some of these nuances don't come through. But we got to be very careful that when we're talking about these um, these Calvinist theologians, um, they're very careful to try to avoid saying that you know God is the author of sin or God is the author of evil or that God is directly causing you to you know. So they've got mechanisms that. Uh, that, that, that keep God from being the author of sin. So I want to state that, that, that you need to read what they're saying. You need to read how I'm quoting them in my book where I have more time to go into that because we don't want to misrepresent what they're saying. But I'm just saying the implication of their metaphysic is that at the end of the day, every thought that you have and every intent of the heart and every choice that you make can only be that way. It is necessary, and it is God's determination. And that just doesn't seem to be what you find in the Bible. You certainly don't have statements in Scripture that uh, that very clearly say that. I mean, there, there are some things that, that Calvinists believe can be interpreted as that God is determining, you know, things. And, of course, God does determine a lot of things directly. And, and and inexorably, um, but there, you know, but, but we still uh, see in Scripture libertarian free will. Absolutely, not absolute free will. Arminius is very clear: it is not freedom from depravity, it is not freedom from sin, and the noetic effects of sin on our minds. Our minds are darkened. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We do not have free will in that sense. But once God enables us and comes to us with his grace, we do have free will in the sense of freedom from necessity, in the sense of the power of alternative choice. We can resist. Well, this has been um, a fruitful discussion today, uh, Dr. Penson. From my perspective, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'm going to toss it over to Ben and let him wrap it, wrap us up on this episode today. But dear listener, we're so thankful that you've uh, stayed with us. We do encourage you. Uh, Ben's going to give you some information about the book here in just a little bit, but we do encourage you get your hands on this book and share it in your congregation, in your uh, local church associational fellowship, your minister's fellowship. Uh, we believe that Dr. Pinson's book and this discussion today will really clarify uh, many misconceptions about Arminianism. Ben, tossing it over to you. I catch the softball. Um, <laughs> well, one of the things I will say before before I conclude is that, you know, Dustin and I have both been in Southern Baptist uh, higher education and other schools. And, um, you know, we're, we're just our Armenian reformed Armenians are just widely misrepresented. We're lumped into the other categories of Wesleyans a lot of times or, or kind of this hybrid type of Arminianism. So this book is going to be very helpful in sort of categorizing us in our own spectrum of Arminianism, uh, which is going to be so helpful. Um, but we want to thank, of course, Dr. Pinson, thanks for coming on and and uh, chatting with us and uh, shooting the breeze. And, you know, we're all we're just eating this up. You know, we love talking about this and. Uh, we both are are indebted to you for your investment in us and your and your uh, mentorship. But uh, but also uh, thanks to uh, the folks at Craigle Academic. They are uh, going to be giving away three copies of your book uh, through the podcast. So I'm going to tell you how to do that. And we'll put this up on all the social media and stuff. But what we're going to want you to do is like this post, share this post and also subscribe to Everyday Theology on uh, the social platform that you're liking, sharing, whatever. But as an added bonus, we want you to comment on uh, on the post what your favorite topic of discussion was through this interview, whether it was free will and determinism, or you know what it means to be reformed, or whatever. And uh, and uh, we will pick three winners uh, later on uh, to, uh, to send three copies of Craig is going to send you three copies of that book. So, uh, Dr. Pinson, again, it was great to have you on. Thanks to, uh, you for writing this book. Thanks to Craigle for, um, for, uh, kind of sponsoring this podcast. And, uh, also, uh, we are hoping that this is beneficial for our listeners. Well, I want to thank y'all for having me on. It's been a it's been a great experience, and just kind of chatting about uh, about this. You know, chatting about it is a little bit different from writing about it, and there's a lot of nuance <laughs> that, 
that you can't really get into in a, in a forum like this. But I think it's very helpful just to, to bat ideas around like this. And I appreciate y'all uh, inviting me here. So uh, thanks, Dr. Pinson, for coming on the show. And we hope, uh, dear listener, that this these truths reaches you for your good and for God's glory. Yeah.